The Take Action podcast series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach to advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com. Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, This is the podcast, uh, piggybacking off the webinar that we did around uh, using fixed index annuities as a bond alternative uh, with our guest, Bill Richardson. But today, um, for our podcast today, we invited uh, Professor Jamie Hopkins. So Jamie is a professor at the American College and director of New York Life Center for Retirement Income. Uh, He's a well-recognized writer, speaker, and thought leader in the area of retirement income planning. His most recent book, Rewirement, Rewiring the Way You Think About Retirement, details the behavioral finance issues that hold people back from a more financially secure retirement. Um, So very excited to announce Jamie. And Jamie and I were just talking before we started the podcast, him and I were both uh, a few years ago, top 40 under 40 of investment news. So that's kind of cool. Um, but this is the first opportunity uh, I got to meet Jamie. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Yeah, this is going to be great. I'm, uh, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on these issues. Um, these, uh, you know, specifically, you know, one of the things I would, I would love you to talk about, Jamie, is there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings and, uh, misconceptions around how these products work, uh, how they work, fixed index annuities. I mean, people understand a fixed annuity, and it's almost similar to a CD at the bank. I mean, you just earn a fixed interest rate for a period of time. And people understand variable annuities. It's basically buying mutual funds inside of an annuity wrapper. But when it comes to indexed annuities, I feel like people sometimes, you know, don't understand how these things actually work and how the insurance company is coming up with, you know, how they're crediting interest and, you know, uh, to the clients. And so I'd love for you to maybe start, Jamie, just talking about what is a fixed index annuity and how does it work? Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, that's a, that's a great intro to this and kind of the, the important thing to understand about fixed index annuity, probably the starting point is right. That this is really kind of a, tax advantaged accumulation product that's going to be issued by an insurance company. It's not really an investment product. Um, Now, you know, there's been times when regulators have looked at this, but today it's not considered an investment product. But you kind of feel when you're buying it that you're buying investments along with some type of annuity. It's kind of marrying the two together. And the real general idea here is essentially you're using the annuity wrapper and the insurance company is on the back end kind of investing and buying different indexes and different investments to create a growth potential inside of the annuity for you so that this can, as I said, it is an accumulation product. So it does get to accumulate wealth over time. One of the benefits of it as like kind of overusing other products is it is in that tax advantage annuity wrapper, meaning that you don't pay income taxes on the gains in there, that it's essentially the earnings grow on a tax deferred basis. So they get to continue to accumulate over time, kind of like if you're using a 401k or IRA, not exactly the same, but similar to that. Now, one of the areas that 
as you said, makes this really challenging, though, um, from the consumer standpoint, and why there are so many misconceptions around this is because almost every insurance company offers a slightly different product than the next insurance company. So uh, that's really real challenges here that, uh, in the end, a lot of the decisions come down to specific products. And how does that company create the caps and floors of the interest that goes into your annuity account in this fee. So, and I just mentioned caps and floors. So that's a very important thing. Now, for generally speaking, right, you can't lose money in a fee. So you, if the market declines, that's more on the insurance company. It's not on you. But the growth, you're not going to get 100% of either. So if the index goes up to 9% that year, maybe you're only getting 3 or 4% of that. Now, what's happening to that other five, that can get a little complicated too. It's getting split up in a number of ways. It's not all going to the insurance company. So I know I've been talking a lot there, but very generally speaking, right, as I said, fixed index new is really just a tax kind of favorite accumulation product that's going to be sold in the insurance kind of arena, not in the investment arena, but still gives you upside growth potential based on a market index. So, Jamie, what about, say it's non, not, uh, say it's tax qualified money, it's not non-qualified, so forget about tax. So then, you know, the fixed index annuity, you know, how would you, you know, I, I guess the other thing I'd like to hear or understand is, you know, if you're, you know, explaining how uh, the interest is is credited, you know, so basically in, in general way, what I'll say to an actual client is, you know, the index annuity, if you're the interest, if you're, if the market does go, goes up, you're going to earn a favorable interest rate. If the market goes down, you're simply going to earn a zero. Now that's a very simplified way of introducing <laughs> the concept, you know, of, of what it does. Yeah. But, when you start to go a little deeper in, in explaining to a client how it actually works, you know, how would you explain, like, I guess, options, et cetera? Yeah, so again, on that one, you are going to have to look at different products. Now, but generally speaking, what's going to happen is the biggest thing you want to look at there is what the interest or investment gain cap is going to be. So most of the caps are going to be, so that's when, if the if it's going up, what are you earning as your interest in there? And that typically is any, you know, can be anywhere three up to maybe eight. I've seen some eight, nine percent caps. So that's pretty, that's a pretty large cap, right? If you're getting six, seven, eight percent interest in there, that's pretty good. With, as you said, kind of the downside protection, if the market drops, which now we've been going about, you know, kind of 10 years up, that a lot of people are feeling that there might be a drop coming soon, but nobody can ever predict that. But when that happens, you know that you have that safety there that the interest, right, you're not going to get a big negative on that sheet there. You might get zero for that year, but you at least get the hold steady. So essentially what happens here is it's, it's almost like using a put and call strategy, right, if you're thinking about that in investment, that you kind of set a minimum on how much it can go down to where you don't lose. But you also cap your upside, right? So you can't kind of get the full returns of the market. But you're not really investing in the market. You're in this kind of different environment in an insurance products where you're getting the benefit of rising equities, but not the downside of equities, which is the risk aspect. No, that's great. I appreciate that. Um, well, let's, you know, let's talk a little bit more about 
you know, we, we were chatting a little bit about kind of the three, you know, three different ways that you see indexed and fixed index annuities fitting into the fold and in why. And so, you know, one, you know, and I'll let you explain these in detail, but, you know, the three ways, you know, just as an introduction, one would be flooring, uh, second mean uh, bucketing or time segmenting the money based on the time horizon or purpose of the money, and then third being uh, more systematic withdrawal or total return approach. Um, Jamie, can you talk about all three of those and where you see these products fitting in? Yeah, absolutely, Jason. So that's, a, that's really kind of when we talk to academics that are doing research. Uh, that's kind of how we segregate, split up different retirement income strategies. We kind of try to put them into those three ideological, you know, uh, frames, but uh, in in reality, people kind of cross over between all three. But uh, we'll start at least with the flooring strategy. Uh, that's often also referred to as an essential versus discretionary spending model. So really, what you start off there is you're saying, look, what we have to do is we look at the individual and we see what are the essential expenses you have to have, right? Your housing, your food, your medical, and we need to generate X amount of income to cover those guaranteed essential expenses. Now, the discretionary stuff, we'll get to that later, but we gotta take care of these very important expenses in retirement first. And so the, the, the theme there is that what you wanna attach as an income source to those essential expenses, well, those are essential, which means we need to have them, which means we really need guaranteed income sources. And so that's where annuities, bonds, CDs, bond laddering, all fit in. Those are really the ones, those are our income sources that get guaranteed. Social Security too, which is really an annuity. Um, but do we have enough assets there to build in that guaranteed income stream? So CS fit perfectly well in that strategy, right? As a, as a way to floor, as a way to create a, in essence, guaranteed income. Now, it could actually be a guaranteed income with an upside here with ASEA, but we at least know we're not going to lose value in this account over time with the floor protection there. So we can still build that guarantee spot and maybe even have, right, if this performs well, we can even take care of some of the discretionary income. Then kind of flipping over oh, whether, uh, yeah, so go ahead. Yes. On on the flooring piece, so um, so basically we're talking about like a fixed index annuity with a life in, lifetime income rider would be a flooring approach. That's a lifetime floor of essential of the essential income. Is that correct? Yeah, so yeah. So you would probably would in that case add on a rider. Now um, there are some uh, of the products out there where that doesn't cost much at all. Some that actually don't cost anything to add on the guaranteed rider. Um, right. because, because the annuity company knows that there's kind of X amount that they're going to have to provide here already, right, as a value in a FIA, it makes providing a guaranteed income stream off of that account actually very easy to do. Much more complicated when you get into the variable annuity side, um, but with the FIA, it's a lot easier to do from the insurance company aspect, but that is uh, correct. That's probably what you'll be using here in the FIA world. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of how we do it. If somebody wants, you know, a guaranteed lifetime income stream, you know, based you know, on the obviously the claims paying ability, the insurance company, where, you know, that would be a fixed index annuity with like lifetime income rider. So then, go ahead, Jamie, the second. 
Yeah, so the next one, uh, you know, actually ties, ties, ties to your book, too, right, the bucket plan. So bucketing. And bucketing or time segmentation planning really says, well, we have different time periods in retirement. Everything is not static. It's not all the same. So we, some people talk about it as the go-go years, the slow-go years, the no-go years. And you're going to move through this continuum of retirement. And really, you almost need different assets for different time periods. And so typically, a bucketing strategy or time segmentation will set aside specific assets for specific periods of time. So again, going back to this, well, if we're looking across a time horizon, where should we sit our risky assets with high growth potential? Well, we should sit them typically towards the end of retirement. So we're going to put them in the last bucket. Well, the first five years of retirement, those are pretty likely to occur, right? Like we're probably going to make it through five years of retirement. So the the kind of the likelihood that we need assets early on is very high. Um, and that even kind of goes to like a gambler's mentality, right? Where am I going to put my chips of certainty? Well, they're in the first five years. I don't know about year 35. That's less certain. So I can put a less certain asset kind of out there to fund it with a little bit more risk. But the first five years I need to take care of. So again, you get back to this idea, are we going to generate kind of fixed income here in some way? Um, so are we going to use a, a, an annuity? Now, maybe your FIA fits in that first couple of years. Uh, a lot of times FIAs actually might fit in that secondary bucket. So it's not quite just maybe bond laddering the first five years, and we're just going to hold them to maturity for five years, and that's how we're going to generate our income. But then that second bucket, the second bucket gets a little trickier, and that's really the hardest one, because that one, we, we don't want to take on so much risk that if the market drops, we can't get through the, the middle 10 years of retirement. But at the same time period, right, we do need some growth right? Just sitting in, you know, 1%, 2% CDs, less than a percent CDs today isn't going to cut it in there, right? It's just not going to generate enough income. They're going to fall behind inflation. So a accumulation product that does have a downside protection could fit a time frame like that fairly well. So again, you could see uh, a fee in there kind of replacing bonds perhaps as a more secure and possibly more upside version in that, you know, maybe five to seven, eight, ten year time frame uh, in your portfolio. So that does uh, kind of get to actually the webinar you guys did too. When do you start comparing this to other products? Well, typically in that middle bucket, it would be a lot of bonds. And so, but the problem with bonds, especially longer duration bonds, is that they are very uh, essentially price sensitive, value sensitive to interest rates changing. So as interest rates are rising, which that's where, you know, that's the kind of the environment we're in now for the foreseeable future. It's the, you know, kind of expected at least the next couple of years will continue to see that. That's going to bring down the value of long-term bonds. And so you've got to kind of be aware of that, that rising interest rates has a negative effect on that middle tier if you're holding a lot of bonds to generate that income. That's great. No, that's great. And uh, you know what, uh, Jamie, I'm definitely, uh, I know you uh, uh, mentioned the book before we got on the podcast, The Bucket Plan. Um, I, we're going to get you out a copy. We'll get it out in the mail today because it's very similar to what you're describing. It's a three bucket approach now, soon and later. And basically yeah. to keep it super simple for a client, because we all know that's what you got to do. We can have these kind of conversations as advisors and people in the industry 
Uh, but man, you start going, you know, into this level with most clients, you completely lose them. So we do real simple now, soon, and later. The now bucket, in essence, is the money in the bank. The soon bucket yeah. is money you're going to put in bonds or annuities. And then the later bucket is going to be your equities, your life insurance, your annuities with the pension, you know, like with the lifetime income rider, et cetera, and other, you know, alternative investments, you know, really focused on growth or achieving tax yeah. efficiency or, you know, protection, you know, features, et cetera. But the simple three bucket approach now, soon, later, but primarily it's bonds and annuities in the soon bucket, equities, life insurance in the later bucket, money in the bank in the now bucket. Yeah, but that's great. Great way to put it. Yeah, well, we, we can swap books. So I'll send you my book, too, which just came out a couple months ago. And, uh, you know, we'll get that over to you and uh, get your book over here. Oh, I appreciate you doing that. I was going to order it on Amazon, but I'll take a free one. So <laughs> thanks, Jamie. Um, like, and then there was a third, the systematic withdrawal, more, more total return approach. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is the one that conceptually, I think, uh, actually, is, I guess I'll start a different way. This is actually the strategy that the, most advisors report using. So it actually still tends to be from an advisor's perspective. If you ask them which of these three, three strategies are they using, they at least self-report that they tend to use systematic withdrawal strategies the most. Um, now, whether or not that's true, that's a different story, uh, but it is kind of in people's minds, this is closer to what they're doing every day. Um, now, the systematic withdrawal strategy is interesting because it's not as clear that annuities fit into this strategy. And actually, you know, most of the original advisors or investment professionals that were using this strategy weren't using annuities. It wasn't part of their kind of you know, their product mix and planning strategies. Uh, they were mostly using investments. And over the last, you know, I'd probably say decade or so, there's been a lot of really good research in this year, uh, in this area from uh, Ibbotson, Wade Fowl, Michael Kitsi, uh, Moshe Molesky, too, actually had a big impact in this area. Um, and you, you kind of have these, these juggernauts of research out there saying, you know, in the systematic withdrawal approach, the whole goal, as you mentioned, is about total returns. What really what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, you know, can we generate 4%, 5% income, right, of your portfolio for 30 years? And what do we need to do from an investment standpoint to do that, right, and make it safe? That's really what this is about. Now, it really should be product agnostic, meaning that from a total returns perspective, I shouldn't care what product, what strategy, what income source generates me my return. As long as it gives me a good return for, you know, kind of the safety or risk that I'm taking on, I should consider it. So that's really over the last 10 years, this conversation has been brought up and all of a sudden, fixed index annuities, term certain annuities, annuities all of a sudden were fitting in here and saying, well, if you view them as your bonds, right, as a replacement to the bonds, do they provide a higher return? And, you know, on average, because again, here, this is total return. So we're looking at the average across the time frame and a lower level of risk. Well, all of a sudden, the researchers start saying, you know what, it does provide a higher return for a lower level of risk in a lot of situations. So in that case, we should in this systematic withdrawal strategy actually be replacing bonds 
with annuities when they provide us a higher level of return. We shouldn't care that they're called annuities. We can call them anything we want. The name doesn't matter. The strategy doesn't matter. Does it provide us a higher rate of return across that time period? It improves the client's situation. And so, uh, you know, that's been kind of a change that's occurred over time and actually something we've now been teaching in the RICP program here at the college for I guess the last six years, we've been talking about that as a strategy, replacing bonds in a systematic withdrawal approach with annuities. Now, a really interesting thing comes out of this that you and I talked about uh, kind of offline before is this can create a kind of regulatory compliance, uh, you know, kind of making sure that you're actually documenting things issue. And it doesn't mean you can't do it, but it means we do have to start paying attention here, right? If all of a sudden you start doing something that's different than people have always done, you got to make sure one, that it's the right thing to do. It helps the client, then you have to document it. So what I'm talking about here is if we are going to start replacing bonds in a portfolio, right, with annuities, we have to document why we're doing that, right? We really do have to show that. And as I kind of said, if somebody's in a 60-40 to 40-60 mix in that range, generally speaking, regulators aren't ever going to get mad with you. That's just kind of a run-of-the-mill, kind of okay, moderately invested person. And now if you're picking bad assets in the mix, that's a different thing. But that asset allocation mix doesn't ruffle any feathers, right? You're fine. But all of a sudden, if you start replacing those bonds in there with a fixed indexed annuity, well, what happens is your investment allocation mix starts looking higher and higher in equities. That all of a sudden you really are starting to maybe look 80 20. And are you making the case why 80 20 stocks to bonds plus a fixed index annuity is more similar to maybe a 50 50 mix, right? And that you document how that is improving the client situation. You can perfectly do that, but you do have to then actually pay attention to why you're you know, maybe modifying the asset allocation. Because the downside is if you start selling the stocks to buy the fixed indexed annuity, did you improve their total returns in that case? And in that case, maybe, maybe not, right? And that can be a little bit more challenging again to show. Um, not that it can't, but we do have to, again, kind of pay attention to those issues. Yeah, the total return approach is, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, in a rising interest rate environment, that we're in, you know, do you feel like bonds are going to do better knowing the inverse relationship of interest rates rising and bond values? Um, and then also with that being said, in a rising interest rate environment, it gives the insurance company more money because ultimately what the client's doing is they're foregoing the fixed interest rate to take that money they otherwise would have been credited and have the insurance company buy options. And so they're indexing their interest rate. And so, you know, with that being said, knowing that you have the floor on the indexed annuity and you don't have the floor on the bonds in the environment of a rising interest rate environment, I mean, but, you know, I never thought of what you said before. I mean, it's kind of common sense, but the way you put it, I like, Jamie, is, you know, trying to justify moving it from stocks into the annuity I mean, ultimately, if you have the documentation, if you're following a best interest process where you have all the documentation of why you're making the recommendations you're making, um, really doing financial planning, I think you're okay no matter what, as long as it makes sense and was in the best interest of the client. Yeah, and I, and I agree with that, right? It's, 
as long as you're doing, you know, probably close to what we wish we would deem as financial planning, you're documenting, you're following a process, it's improving the client situation and you're not adding unnecessary costs to it, right? You can, you can, you know, show benefits of a lot of different strategies. It's kind of one of the, the interesting and downsides of kind of retirement income planning is that there's, there's actually very little consensus, right, on the one and only strategy. It's very dependent on, right, what the markets are doing, what interest rates are doing, what the client's goals are. Um, you know, because I usually talk about retirement income planning as goals-based planning. And, uh, you know, one of my quotes about that is, you know, retirement income planning is like trying to hit a moving target in the wind. We don't know how long you're going to live. We don't know what your goals will be, right? So the target's moving up and back. And there's wind because things change along the course of retirement, right? Interest rates rise. Markets fall, right? Government regulations and rules change. So we can't just plan on going a straight path all the way there. So building in flexibility to a plan is very important. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I, you had said this before when we were chatting before. And um, of the three ways, you know, the flooring, uh, which is really ensuring the essential income with the lifetime income rider uh, in, in this context that we're talking about, Bucketing, which is time segmenting the money and probably more using annuities for free withdrawals in that middle bucket, um, but not because it's going to require a lot more capital to buy a lifetime income floor versus in the middle bucket, you're, what you're really buying is a bridge. You're buying a bridge uh, to cover the, the time horizon of the volatility that may occur in that, in that middle bucket in order to be able to optimize equities out in the later bucket. Um, you know, those two, and then the third is the total return approach, but the first and the second, the flooring and the bucketing, I mean, that's really risk mitigation. And those are the, and, and those are the advisors, I think, that are representing both sides of the fence. They're offering investments and they're offering insurance products, and they're combining the two to create a plan that not only optimizes growth, but encompasses risk mitigation, where the total return approach is, um, you know, in my opinion, yes, I agree with what you said. The bulk of the advisors out there, that is absolutely what they're doing. I think the, I mean, that's factual. We know from surveys and, yeah. and, and studies <laughs> that were done, that is the case. But, you know, when you ever, when you think about the whole concept, you know, of a blue ocean or red ocean and which one do you want to swim in, I mean, I think you almost always want to be doing the opposite of what the, the, the bulk of the crowd's doing. And so that's what I like about really, you know, incorporating in a flooring and a bucketing approach and, and representing both sides of the fence, uh, investments and insurance, is by combining the two, you know, you're differentiating yourself. You're talking about things that clients may or may have never heard about. Where, where most of the advisors out there are really all trying selling off, or a lot of them are selling off performance. And I think that's what is represented in the bulk of the, the studies and the surveys that you referenced earlier. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And, I, and, and I'm in the same boat. And actually, most of the academic researchers are kind of in this, uh, you know, in the same world is that, we, you know, we do need to marry together the insurance and investment world when doing planning, right? That that really either one side with ignoring the other side's not doing anyone justice. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, man, this was a great conversation, Jamie. I'm so grateful that we were able to, to meet each other and thankful for you to spend your time with me on this podcast for the advisors. And uh, I will definitely get you my book and I want to make sure we connect again. So uh, I'll, I'll reach out to you offline. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thanks for having me on, Jason. All right. Take care. The Take Action podcast series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach to advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com.